0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. We are recording today from the 42nd Critical Care Congress in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Joining us today is Warren C. Dorlack, MD, FACS, who is Associate Professor of Surgery at the University of Cincinnati in Ohio. Dr. Dorlak is a retired colonel in the U.S. Air Force and director of Stars, Cincinnati Center for Sustainment of Trauma and Readiness Skills. CSTARS is a joint program between the University of Cincinnati Medical Center and the Air Force, offering training for military personnel in the areas of trauma and critical care. He is with us today to discuss his lecture, Joint Theater Trauma System, Impact of Standardizing Practice During Wartime, which he presented during the Critical Care Congress. Thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed your talk this morning. I was struck, actually, by... um, I guess I thought that the trauma system in the military was really well organized. It had been organized perhaps during peacetime rather than organized uh, during wartime. Uh, and that really that
1: really struck me and surprised me. Yeah, I think a lot of the lessons learned from prior wars had not passed down. And as one of the participants in the audience was talking about from their experiences in, in Vietnam, at the end of Vietnam they had a much more robust program than we, I think, had going into this war. And again, we had the individual pieces we had worked out, and we had those worked out very well. So the Ford surgical teams now are really have done some extraordinary work with very few resources. And in one paper published by Brian Eastridge, they he showed that the Ford surgical team, which may be a 10-man surgical team, that's all the medical support you have at, at a facility. Uh, had the same mortality in damage control patients as patients that were gone, had gone to a Roll 3 or a combat support hospital size, where you may have 250 medical personnel. And so I think we had worked those smaller pieces out. We had worked out some of the aspects of, of critical care air transport. We had worked out uh, a lot of those aspects of the, the Ford surgical teams. And even our Air Force Theater Hospital, we had worked in the Air Force, we had worked on all the individual components. But trying to link all those together, uh, we did not have. And probably when you look back on this war, the biggest lesson that we learned from this war was the importance of having a trauma system, having a registry, having all that in play and set up and use before you go into war. It's not the place you want to learn it. Yeah. It seems to me, I mean, I, I guess my recollection has always been in,
0: in hearing many talks, I guess maybe previous to this war, but that it was really wartime, especially surgical efforts that informed and changed civilian care, where in this case it sounds almost as if the civilian evolution of trauma systems informed the military experience and uh, helped
1: guide that? Yeah, I think when it comes to the trauma system development, we have clearly taken all the lessons learned from the American College of Surgeons and the Committee on Trauma, uh, Trauma Center Verification, their green book, uh, their white book, all those tools that they use for developing a civilian trauma system and a civilian trauma center. We've taken those, we've modified them, and then used them uh, within our circumstances. And actually, we've been heavily su- supported by members from the American College of Surgeons, and so they've really helped us facilitate doing that. Um, but I mean, there have been other things where the military has clearly pushed things out to the civilian world. So I think uh, damage control resuscitation, how we use blood products are lessons learned from Iraq and Afghanistan that are now being implemented in the civilian world. But. Still, I mean, we, those are observations basically seen in the combat theater. It's all retrospective review paper mm-hmm. work. And those are now being replicated in civilian trauma patients to try and really hash out the science behind it. So they're observations taking it to sort of a translational research mode. So I think it's, we're going both ways. But from the trauma system development, trauma center development, we clearly took all of those lessons from the American College of Surgeons. Can Can you take a step back and perhaps because I
0: th- I think, um, I, mean, I I think I had a certain amount of understanding of the the, the systems and uh, the levels of hospitals from my own trauma perspective and being a surgeon. But I I think actually the community at large may not understand the different. Levels of care um, from the front line back to uh, our our two um, centers in the in the states. Can you just take us through kind of the injured the injured soldier at the um, forefront and how
1: how they work their way through the system? Sure. So we do, um, and it, traditionally, his, historically, we've talked about echelons of care or levels of care. Uh, those are being transformed over and. Levels of care is now, although I still use it intermittently, it's still relatively. Um, it's it's going by the wayside. It's now uh, an old term, and now the term that we're trying to use is roll because that's the term right. that the, that NATO uses, and so. Uh, but whatever you want to call it, it it's really level one or roll one is point of injury sort of care, and um, the, there are differences in terms of what kind of care can be provided on the battlefield depending on some of the resources that are are nearby. But primarily they're very uh, robust EMT, emergency medical technician, uh, sort of advanced emergency medical technician care that's being provided um, by the medic at the the scene. Um, The patients then are typically picked up by a helicopter. In Afghanistan we've had the good fortune to have air superiority uh, in most locations and so we've been able to use helicopter transport which is faster uh, and um, in some regards um, a a lot safer than if we had been using ground transport. So pretty much all the moves or 95 percent of the moves are made by uh, helicopter transport.
0: Was that a change during the last five ten years, in terms of, you had mentioned during your talk a reduction of transport time. I, don't know, I, I presume that's from the field, uh, to about 110 minutes down
1: to 30 minutes, and that was... That was during 2009 with uh, Secretary Gates uh, making a mandate that he wanted any U.S. casualty to be at surgical care within 60 minutes. And so uh, with that mandate, lots of things were put into play by the medevac community, by the, the medics, uh, by the helicopter pilots, by the mechanics, by the people that tasked the helicopters. I mean, there were literally hundreds of changes that had to be made to make that happen, given the limited number of resources that we had, number limited number of surgical sites, limited number of helicopters. And so uh, a lot of creative thinking went into play. And over a few months period, they were able to drop that time down. In a few months. To, yeah, in months, really, to a third of, of the time that it had been required before. And you but, mentioned that it was with some reluctance that that change was made? There, I would say that the reluctance comes because we don't have good data. People like to refer to this golden hour so. of trauma care and trying to get the patient to surgical care within one hour is the golden hour. And there was not a lot of good data to support that. I think with the changes that we've made and with the data and the robust registry that we have now, I think we're going to be able to go back and look at those transport times and be able to show whether there is truly a difference or not. Um, Some people talk about a platinum 10 minutes, and it may be more, you know, closer to 10 minutes that If you're going to stop truncal hemorrhage, you've got to get the patient to that kind of care pretty quickly. Um, I think if you can survive 30 minutes, chances are you're likely going to be able to survive 60 minutes. Um, But anyway, that is uh, point-of-injury care and then in-route care from uh, from the field. Uh, We have really skipped over a lot of the typical classical Rule 1 or Level 1 care. Uh, that's being provided, like at a battalion aid station. Uh, we had a number of those in locations in Iraq that were uh, heavily used and very important for stabilizing uh, casualties. But uh, in Afghanistan, we've kind of gone away. I'd say more from the from the role one battalion aid station sort of care, and those patients really are being picked up from the field and taken directly to a forward surgical. Hospital, and that Ford that surgical hospital would be a roll two. That would be a roll two. A role two. Okay, if it's that. a small team, it'd be a roll two. In the, our current forward surgical teams, are anywhere from uh, ten man personnel to twenty four men, and uh, women and men, and uh, a combat support hospital or an Air Force Cedar Hospital, uh, an EMEDS, or there's lots of different names for it out there. But a roll three is going to be a facility that may have as many as two hundred to two hundred and fifty personnel that are supporting them. And you can be picked up either and taken directly to a level three or you may go to a level two. And uh, we do use bypass sort of criteria if we have a casualty that's severely injured that is not going to meet the resources of a level two that they will bypass a level two if it's not a big time difference and take them to a, a level three or a roll three. And that's again a lesson that I think we've brought from the civilian community. Knowing that you know you don't have to go step by step by step, you can bypass other facilities.
0: So, what what type of injuries or um, levels of care would require that you would skip a level two center? In uh, the southern roll two center, sure,
1: yeah. In the southern Helmand province, uh, a good example would be uh, a casualty who has suffered a devastating landmine sort of explosion, where uh, the casualty has an open pelvic fracture, has lost bilateral lower extremity is very high up right at the groin um, that casualty you know is going to require on the order of maybe a hundred different uh, units of blood products when you add the plasma and the packed red blood cells the platelets and all those up and <clears throat> that kind of a resor- that kind of a casualty can uh, quickly drain a level 2 facility and so that would that would be one that if it's a matter of minutes, I think we're going to elect, the medics will elect to take that patient to a role three facility. Uh, head injured patients that clearly need neurosurgical care would also be another one that might bypass a level two to get onto a level three facility. I see.
0: And then how stable do you need to be to leave a level three center?
1: And, and that varies depending on what the operational tempo is. So, uh, and you could... S- probably imagine in a civilian disaster sort of setting, you're going to have different operational tempos that are going to dictate what you are able to do and what you, what you can do. So in the military setting, if things are reasonably uh, stable and there's not a, a big surge of casualty uh, flow, we'll keep a patient a casualty um, until we think that they're safe enough to fly. And we've got I don't want to say a checklist, but we do have a, a list of things that we try to go through. We don't want their oxygen requirement and their PEEP requirement to be so high that we don't have any room to maneuver once the, the patient gets airborne. Um, so uh, we try to pay not move a patient that has ongoing blood requirement. Uh, about 5 to 7% of our critical care transport moves will receive blood during the flight, but it's almost blood that was sort of scheduled to be given to them. Um, So they identified that the hemoglobin was low. They said, all right, we'll give two units of blood in flight uh, as we're taking off. We don't need to delay the transport for that. But um, we do want the patient to be as stable as possible. There are other times, uh, for instance, before we had the ability to do dialysis in theater, which came about in 2009 by some work by uh, David Sonies, one of our our, uh, critical care surgeons at Landstuhl in Germany. he was real instrumental in sort of pushing out dialysis uh, to the theater. But prior to that, when we didn't have dialysis, uh, if you had a patient that was going into renal failure, you had to move them because you didn't have a choice. And so if you, and you had a relatively a small window to move them in. Uh, our burn patients, where they've got a severe inhalational injury, those patients we've identified as having a relatively short window to be moved in, as well. And so we want to try and get those bad inhalational injuries all the way back to the burn unit in San Antonio within 72 hours of their injury, if possible. And so those will often be moved um, in the first 12 to to uh, 20 hours after burning. They'll be uh, on a plane headed to Germany. And that's because they get you don't want to wait until they get sick. Yeah, they will, and we've learned this lesson sometimes the hard way, but uh, when we've had other injuries of, that we've had to keep them for. Uh, but their lung, if they have a severe acute lung injury, it will get progressively worse, and by 72 hours they're very, very difficult to move. And so we want to try and have them back before that progresses. And they still tra- they do travel through Germany, or they yeah they land in Germany. They'll sort of be restabilized, undergoing additional surgery if needed uh, in Germany. Uh, our, if it's a severe casualty, our burn team from San Antonio will fly over. They, they will leave San Antonio sometimes about the same time that the plane is leaving, let's say Afghanistan or Iraq, and uh, they would meet the plane essentially in Germany. The patient will undergo surgery, get stabilized overnight in Germany, and then the next morning they're flying back to San Antonio. Impressive. So then uh, roll, fours. roll 4 is our first, we say definitive uh, care facility, but uh, that's the first uh, care that, that they receive outside of the theater. And our current role 4 for CENTCOM, for Central Command, is in Germany. And so essentially all patients coming out of, that have come out of Iraq over the past 10 years, and all those patients, uh, or seven years, and all those patients coming out of Afghanistan for the last 10 years have all, uh, for the most part, filtered through Landstuhl in Germany. And that's sort of our central receiving collecting point. And actually, that's sort of unique because it's uh, some people have described it as an hourglass, other people have described it as a prism, but we sort of get patients coming from all different locations uh, brought into Germany, uh, and then they leave from there, and then they will, again, spread out and go to a number of different places. So if someone is able to be rehabilitated in it, outside the hospital, they don't necessarily need to fly back to a Roll 5 in the United States. They may fly all the way back to their facility that uh, is associ- the medical treatment facility that's associated with the base that they're from. Um, so the, le- the only real central collecting point where all these casualties have a single definite um uh, mm-hmm combined care is at Landstuhl. And you were um, a medical director at Landstuhl for a while? So I was a trauma medical director from 2004 to 2007. And then Landstuhl at that point was not really a, we were receiving casualties, but it wasn't really in 2004 a trauma center, as we know a trauma center in the United States. Um, We did receive American College of Surgery verification as a trauma center in 2007 as a level two trauma center, and in 2010, I believe, they were uh, re-verified as a level one trauma center.
0: Yeah, I was surprised by that as well. I, I, I just presumed it was a, a trauma center the whole time. Well, I, guess I mean, it was
1: functioning as a trauma center, but again, we went into this war without having yeah. a lot of this stuff set up. So uh, it's, it launched all at the beginning of the war was a community hospital and serving sort of a central region of Europe. It was always anticipated to be a receiving facility. Um, but uh, at the very start of the war, there only two of the surgeons that were assigned to the facility were actually re- remained behind. And the rest of them deployed. And so Ty Putnam and I believe Mark Irvin were two of the surgeons that stayed behind and sort of did the build up as a trauma center. And that took s- several years. I mean, we, we, there's no way we could have met American College of Surgery verification criteria until 2007. So, we were receiving casualties since 2001. And so, you can see it takes a while to set something up oh, like this. It a long time, yeah. It's that. impressive. And uh, all
0: along that course from Roll 1 through Roll 4, are the different branches of the military uh, all working side by side or are they at different centers?
1: Yeah, surprisingly, we do. We kind of work all side by side. <laughs> <coughs> and uh, we don't necessarily do that. Uh, Prior to the war, we weren't necessarily doing that stateside. There were a few places where we were integrated, um, but over the last 10 years, we've become com- completely integrated. So, uh, typically one service will take the lead at a different site, uh, but virtually every center has, um, has some sort of a joint role. Uh, some of our Ford surgical teams are staffed. Half of the staffing come from the Navy, half come from the Air Force. Uh, we have some forward surgical teams that are all Army, yet they may have a few Air Force personnel assigned to them to help with the in route care part. Um, but virtually across the theater, there's all the all of the services are integrated, and we're also integrated in a number of places with a lot of our NATO co- uh, colleagues. Yeah. So we work uh, very closely with the British in their facility in Bastion, in the Helmand Province. The Dutch and uh, the Danish have worked very closely, and the Canadians uh, with uh, the Kandahar facility. As long as if you go to Kandahar, you can speak just about any language, and you'll find someone that that uh, is native to that country. In (coughs) um, eastern part of Afghanistan, it's been more a U.S. role, so you find less NATO sort of function there, but. Still, all three services are intermingled. I was wondering with that international component,
0: and also, um, I think as you stated, and, uh, and as I've heard repeatedly, the, the especially the more forward units take care of a lot of civilians. And I was trying to figure out: um, Do all patients take a common course, or so? Do do some of this, for instance, Iraq or Afghanistan? Civilians come back through the system and to the even to the states and and if other um, nationalities were represented in some of your casualties do they take a different course and and, and who you, you it sounds like the military through this through this time on it sounds like under a fair amount of your direction has created this large registry and who's included in the registry is that all um, our military folks, or is that all patients taken care of?
1: Yeah. So, great questions. Um, for the the registry um, really was the sort of the brainchild of John Holcomb, who's now at the University of Texas. And uh, he is, uh, he and Don Jenkins and Brian Eastridge, a number of other guys, were really instrumental in sort of pushing that out. Um, I had really no no role in the, in the initial setup of of the trauma registry but um we do care for for all casualties uh, we care for prisoners of war uh, we care for civilians uh, and we care for nato troops and all the in theater facilities whether they're u.s or nato they all basically do the same thing and how we um how we care for those varies a little bit depending on what the operational tempo is um, if, if, uh, if space uh, allows, uh, we'll keep a patient, for instance, at the Air Force Theater Hospital in Bagram, we'll keep a, a civilian patient there as long as it takes to get them better. And uh, especially with the, with the children, we'll keep them, because really there aren't that many other options of where to send them. If it's a Afghan uh, soldier, uh, there are Afghan hospitals, Afghan military hospitals and those uh, are staffed in primarily by the afghans themselves uh, although we have mentor teams in those hospitals with them uh, to help them uh, in the development of uh, of a trauma center and trauma system and <clears throat> as far as the nato troops go uh, whoever is the first casualty or, or whoever is the first to to touch the patient uh, a patient may in stay uh, within their care, or they may get passed over um, to another to another uh, country. It just sort of depends on, on where they're from and, and also what kind of injury they have. So the Canadians, the Spanish, the Germans, the British—they uh, all have their own capability for doing critical care transport out of out of Afghanistan, and so. If they have one of those, their casualties at their facility, they'll move them out out of, the, out of the country themselves. If we have a British casualty who, for whatever reason, was being taken care of at Bagram, maybe he had a particular injury that we had a specialty for, then we may be the ones to bring them back as far as Germany goes, and then they would come to Germany and pick them up from Germany. The Canadians would do the same thing. If we had a patient that we had cared for that was a Canadian, they would come to Germany and pick them up uh, from there. Um, Very few of the civilians or the Afghan uh, soldiers leave the country via the Department of Defense and the only way that they would is uh, with a sort of a special exception, exemption uh, coming from the Secretary of Defense. Um, Otherwise, they receive all their care within theater. And that's the same way it was in Iraq. Um, There are government, uh, non-government organizations that have facilitated getting, especially children that needed subspecialty care back to the United States to get uh, reconstructive surgery done, for instance. Um, and the U.S. military has helped facilitate some of that. I see.
0: And the registry, uh, does that include all patients touched or just the uh, folks that come full, fully
1: through the system? So our DOD registry, all the uh a number of the other countries also have registries as well, so the, the UK has a uh, has a very robust registry. Um, our registry is only trauma patients, and it's only uh, trauma patients that required at least overnight hospitalization. So if they uh, entered and uh, had a minor injury and then got treated and then got sent back to their unit, then uh, they're actually not captured by our registry, so it only takes Really, um, you have to be reasonably injured to get into the registry. I see. And then to run that registry, we've got, uh, you know, a, a dozen uh, trauma nurses that are deployed, that are r- helping with the care of those patients, but also capturing all that data sort of prospectively as the care is is gone, ongoing, to capture all that data as accurately as possible. And
0: all all the additional personnel that it takes to have a trauma system, uh, will there be a role for them as the military continues to um, exit uh, wartime? And can can it be
1: maintained for the next episode? That's the million-dollar question. (laughs) So um, I I would like to say, boy, hopefully we've learned our lesson and we will maintain this, but uh, I think that's, That is still uh, a lesson that uh, we don't know how it's going to play out. Um, I know in Landstuhl in Germany, for instance, so right now it's a verified level one trauma center by the American College. However, there is no intent to maintain it as a level one trauma center uh, as casualty flow winds down. And so the expectation is that they will fall back to a level two and after end of casualty flow, Hopefully, ideally, it would go back to something like a level three so that you maintain at least some basis of the trauma system in play. So you have the performance improvement process um, and all the personnel that know how to do that. You have the data collection system in place with people that know how to use it. And you know, you could take it from let's say there's 20 personnel assigned to that trauma program at this point, that's just a guess number. Uh, Let's say you know, you could wind that down to maybe three or four personnel. So a much smaller number, but it would still maintain at least somewhat of a system in play so that if you did have to ramp up quickly, you wouldn't have to go through the long process that we had to learn during this war. Um, And then stateside, some of our facilities do receive civilian care, uh, civilian trauma patients, and so those places um, should already be maintaining, for instance, uh, old Burke Army Medical Center in San Antonio, which is now the San Antonio Military Medical Center, uh, that has always been a level one trauma center, it'll continue to be a level one trauma center. And so some of those lessons w- uh, won't go away. As far as the, the people that are deployed, uh, most of them, this is not maybe necessarily the job that they do every day anyway. And so we may have a critical care nurse that uh, has done trauma. She's deployed as, or he is deployed as a as a trauma nurse coordinator at one of our facilities, uh, they'll go back to the regular job that they had before that. But now always having in the back of their mind, you know, this experience. Um, and hopefully that will go on within the Department of Defense and will actually develop a specialty for trauma nursing, uh, which right now we don't have.
0: So that alludes a little bit to you. You know, your your wife, I should mention, we uh, have a talk just after you. She's uh, Critical care pulmonologist, correct. Uh, trained and has worked. Worked You've worked alongside each other, I guess, for a long time. It sounds like she she spoke about the critical care transport teams, um, and mentioned uh, the importance of folks when they're not doing their critical care transport teams to have uh, access to um, experience in critical care transports and trauma, uh, and alluded to the program you have at Cincinnati. Um, uh, in which, uh, it, I guess it's an attempt to have not not civilians, but people who are involved in the military, but are not active in active duty, uh, to gain experience with trauma and critical care. <clears throat> Is that am I am I saying that right? Or yeah,
1: that's sort of that, that's <laughs> sort of right. Yeah, we've got um, in the Air Force we have three sites that are called the Sea Stars and they're Center for Sustainment of Trauma and Readiness Skills. But uh, these three sites do pre-deployment training and uh, sort of the spin up of getting someone ready to go into theater. Uh, At our site in Cincinnati specifically our tasking is for the critical care transport teams as you mentioned. So we will take active duty, reserve, guard, members who are going to deploy as a critical care or a medical transport team member they'll come to Cincinnati they'll spend two weeks with us uh, before they deploy and during that two weeks they sort of get a uh, kind of a quick review on trauma and specifically on military trauma and what kind of injuries we're seeing today so that changes so every six months our injury patterns have through the war have changed a little bit as the insurgents as we change uh, our our protective equipment, uh, they'll change their their uh, bombing mechanisms, let's say. Um, and so we've had to sort of adapt to that. And so we're constantly, all these training programs are constantly in a, having to adjust to the injury patterns that are going on. So the team members that come, they'll get a sort of refresher on that and sort of get an update on what the current injury processes are. And then they go over all the problems that previous critical air transport teams have experienced. And so the idea is to put them into a situation where they see everything that's gone wrong for other people before them, so that way when they experience that, or if they have to experience it uh, while they're deployed, they'll know how to handle that. So we use simulation for a lot of that, and we use some pretty advanced critical care simulation with multiple casualties. And... uh, and that's fairly robust. Some of these teams have never been up in the air before. So this is also their first opportunity to fly on a Air Force aircraft. They may have been up in the air on a civilian aircraft, but they've never been up in the air on a military aircraft. So about 10% of our class, that may be their first time to be on a military aircraft. So uh, we have identified people that just have horrific motion sickness and despite all efforts you know it was very clear that uh, being a a member of a career transport team was not something that they were going to be able to be uh, able to function particularly well at and so we've had those people get pulled off so uh, you know you learn all sorts of different things but it's really uh, the goal of the of the program is to update them on on the current currencies it's also for us to have an opportunity to see them and make sure that uh, they can handle not everybody can handle uh, taking care of a patient at thirty thousand feet, not having anyone that they can call, and uh, having to lead a team that they maybe have never worked with before, and so um, we want to identify those issues before they get deployed um, that program is um, it's it's at a civilian institution so we're at the University of Cincinnati. But uh, it's almost entirely run by the military, so the military has embedded people within the facility to run that. We do have a number of our civilian uh, faculty who augment those teams and uh, assist with things, especially with research and in some of the lectures. Great. I mean, it's really interesting. It's—I uh, feel like
0: we could. <laughs> one question leads to another. I feel like we could talk forever. I was i hoping perhaps you could close by um, telling us what this experience has um, taught about both preparation for wartime medicine uh, as well as preparation in the civilian world and, and uh, standardization and system creation.
1: I think from a standardization um, point, I think that we have clearly learned that especially with when you're dealing with so many different variables, and you have people coming from every type of background, not only within the surgery but you know every specialty out there, uh, in the military, you know they're all pulled in to help. And so, having some standardization, having some clinical practice guidelines um, that we can draw on for these some of these unusual injury thing injury patterns or or just the way that we do things i mean we don't use whole blood in the united states but we have to be able to use it in theater for a number of reasons and so uh making sure that we have a standardized way that we can do that i think is one thing that we've learned is super important as far as as having a system in play you know again hopefully that is a lesson that we won't we won't uh, lose this time and hopefully we'll maintain that and uh I think there's, we still have a long way to go. You know, because this is, again, for the most part, has been developed during a wartime mission. And so people are engaged in lots of other ongoing things. So uh, there's still a long way the, to go in terms of what we can do to develop a better, uh, a better system and make the system more robust. And literally every day, you know, we're making changes to that. So we've not stagnated uh, yet. Um, other quite well. Just some of the other parts of the question. How, how can All we bring those out in the civilian
0: world, or I guess in, in you know, perhaps in terms of preparedness for future
1: military efforts. I mean, as this. You know, one thing that people keep talking about, and that is that we can't use, you know, how we're doing business in Iraq or how we've done mm. how we've done business in Afghanistan as. Our preparation for the next war, because the next war is going to be very different. We may not have air superiority. If we don't have air superiority, um, that's going to change completely how we've done yeah. our medical evacuation, the times that it's take to to move thing, uh, move casualties through the system. So, a lot would change, and so we need to be prepared for the next war, and not making sure that we're. Relying totally on what this war was like, so the next war is going to look very different. Um, you know, one of the things that, that has been mentioned by others, and that is, the only reason that we have all these lessons learned from this war is that we've been in this war for 10 years, and are more now. And had it been the standard U.S. operation, where we would have been out within a year to five years at the most. You know, World War. If you look at World War II, we were not. Engaged in World War II, half as long as we've been engaged in Afghanistan, and so by drawing this out as long as we have, we've been able to learn a lot more lessons. Um, so you're not going to have that. Hopefully, that time period it's going to be a lot shorter. Um, who knows, you know, what the casualty flow, what the environment is going to be, and so I think I think it's 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 wise to to rec- just to remember that we can't be setting something up just like it worked in Afghanistan. Cause that probably is not going to work in the next war.
0: I guess we, in some ways we hope we don't have the ability to learn the important lessons we've
1: learned during this, uh, during this engagement. Yeah. This has been a, um, it's been a, a major sacrifice, not only for this country, but, uh, for, for the military and, uh, for so many military casualties that, uh, the sooner that uh, we can move on to a little bit more peaceful environment, I think, uh, the better for everyone.
0: Well, then, thank you very much for your,
1: your service and
0: your time and uh, for coming to speak with us
1: today. Yeah, well, thanks for having
2: me. SCCM's internationally renowned Fundamental Critical Care Support, FCCS, course has been updated and enhanced to reflect the latest research and the most effective training approaches in critical care. The fifth edition curriculum emphasizes case-based education with scenarios that mirror clinical reality. Ensure that every member of your staff who comes in contact with critically ill patients has the confidence and skills to treat those patients effectively. Bring SCCM's staff training courses on initial critical care and disaster management to your institution. Ask to speak to the SCCM Hospital Relations Manager for details about the FCCS or FCCS online courses, Pediatric Fundamental Critical Care Support, or Fundamental Disaster Management courses. Michael S. Weinstein, MD, FACS, FCCP, serves as an Associate Editor for the iCritical Care podcasts. Dr. Weinstein is Associate Professor of Surgery at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is director of the surgical ICU and executive medical co-director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Programs for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the intensive care unit, medical ethics, diaphragmatic pacing, and spinal cord injury. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.